So, if we are to remain strong in the minority, we can be Only God can do that. That's a big adventure for us. Okay. Okay. Got it. So, again, only God can give us the strength that we need to stand strong when we're grossly outnumbered by the ungodly. And David recognized this. The society that he lived in was crumbling from within. The people were turning uh, to idolatry and to other pagan beliefs. And godly people like David were finding themselves in the minority. Godlessness was prevailing and righteousness was diminishing. And so what did David do? Well, the same thing that we need to do. Turn to God and His promises. And by doing so, we'll find the strength that we need to endure the crisis. So, Psalm 12 begins by David stating the problem, his problem and his request to the Lord. It says, To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord. <laughs> I don't know about your Bibles, but mine has it, that word help all in capitals. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So, surrounded by all the evil in his society, David cries out to God, Help, Lord! He was pleading for God's intervention. It troubled him that godly people were disappearing. They had all but vanished from among men. Instead, everyone seemed to be lying to his neighbor. Honesty was a thing of the past. Instead, people spoke with flattering lips and a, and a double heart. You know, a divided or a double heart is always a problem. In another psalm, David prayed, Lord, unite my heart to fear Your name. Psalm 86, verse 11. 
It's so important that we not have a divided heart. So many are half-hearted. Part of their heart is in the things of the Lord and spiritual things, but a part of their heart is in the world and in worldly things. God, this should be our prayer. God, unite my heart. I don't want to have a double heart. I don't want to be wavering back and forth between you and the world. I don't want to have this being drawn in two directions. You know, it's a decision we have to make every day. Lord, help me not to have a divided heart. So they speak, he says, with a double heart and flattering lips. Not a good thing. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? That sounds a little bit haughty, doesn't it? You know, according to Proverbs chapter 6, uh, verse 17, a lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. It's one of the seven things that God hates in that list there. A lying tongue. And yet the wicked are feeling that they can do anything. That they can achieve whatever they want by using their flattering words. With our tongue we will prevail, they say. It's interesting to me how haughty and prideful Guys like Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins are, especially when they speak to other Christians. I've seen some of these guys, you know, in debates with other Christians. And, you know, uh, I think Dawkins, I saw Dawkins debating um, the fellow that wrote that book that I gave you, Larry, uh, Norman Geisler. And he was so arrogant, so arrogant. And Geisler was so kind and, you know, very polite to him. But, you know, whenever Dawkins would say something, Geisler had a response. And, and it was a good one, I thought. And, but, you know, when, when you know you're being beat with the arguments, what do people generally resort to? Ridicule. They call, call you names because they don't have a valid argument anymore. And that's what was happening. And he was... You know, basically referring to Norman Geisler as a buffoon and an intellectual idiot and all this. But not by giving intellectual arguments that defeated what Geisler said, just by calling him names. Anybody can do that, right? And so there's this arrogance and this haughtiness and this pride. Uh, you know, and some of these atheistic college professors who think that they're so smart and all Christians are just a bunch of intellectual buffoons. Do you know something? When they stand before God, I'm pretty sure they won't have that kind of attitude. They won't have anything to say at all. David asks that all of this foolish and proud talk would be cut off or would be brought to an end. He goes on in verse 5, he says, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. So these... These ungodly people take advantage of the weak and needy, but God says that He will hear their cry and keep them safe and preserve them. Verse 6, He says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. David says that God's words are pure. And they'll be preserved forever. 
They're perfect. Seven, it says there. Purified seven times. Seven is the number of, of perfection or completion. Now, if you have something that is pure, if you add something else to it, what happens? No longer pure, huh? <laughs> or if you have something that is pure and you take something away from it, what happens? Well, I don't know if it becomes more pure. It, it may nothing nothing may happen, or it could become less pure. If you take a vital element that that you know that makes it what it is, and then you remove that, then it's maybe no longer whatever it was. Right? Because something is missing from it. Uh, and, and so the same thing with God's Word. Um, we don't want to add to God's Word and we don't want to take away from God's Word. Because when we do that, then it's no longer God's Word. It's our Word. You know, and we start adding our own opinions and our own ideas and our own interpretations and so forth. Uh, we don't want to do that. So the church should not be adding anything to the Word of God because it's already pure. So don't pollute it. You know, when we start adding our own stuff, we're polluting the Word of God. One of the battle cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And so uh, that's a cry probably that we need to take up. And he goes on, verse 8, he says, The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. And certainly this describes much in our world today. The wicked are prowling on every side because people generally love wickedness. So, how should the godly live in such a godless society? Well, we can't look to the majority for the answers. The majority don't have the answers because they're the ones that are ungodly, right? The majority was, or uh, are these wicked, double-hearted, and vile people that David was talking about. The Christian must be willing to stand alone, if need be, always looking to God to show the way. Remember, if you're on God's side, you're on the winning side. can't remember now who it was that said, God plus one is a majority. <laughs> that is so true. If you go to the other side, it may seem like you're winning now. But you will eventually lose in the end and then lose for all eternity. We have to stick with what God says because what He says is the only real, real truth that there is. And while the words of vile men will pass away in due time, God will keep His words and preserve them forever. So, what should we pay attention to? The Word of God, exactly. Okay, Psalm 13. This psalm is for the person going through one of those prolonged times when it seems like God is silent. That's what David is going through here, a time of great perplexity. But we'll see that the perplexity will be turned to praise. The sinking to singing. One writer remarked, this psalm begins with winter and ends with summer. It begins with low, muffled tones of sorrow and ends with a rapture of praise. And what caused the turnaround? We'll see in the middle of the psalm that the turnaround was caused 
by simply David beginning to pray and trust. So Matthew Henry once said, days of trouble must be days of prayer. So the main idea here is that when we find ourselves discouraged and perplexed, if we'll call upon God in trust, our heart will soon be filled with rejoicing. So first of all, David expresses his sorrow in verses 1 and 2. He says, "How uh, to the chief musician of Psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So, you get, you get kind of the drift of what David is asking here. You know, how long, <laughs> O Lord? It seems that every child of God has asked this question at one time or another. And that every follower of God has felt neglected by God. Or at least they, that they've waited a long time for God to, to do what needs to be done. How long is the critical question. Often, we faint under the simple length of our trials. We feel that we could endure almost anything if we knew when it would come to an end. Yet, sometimes we are tried under problems that make us cry out, how long? The pain in David's heart came from a sense that God had forgotten him and that God was distancing Himself from David. He said, will you forget me forever? But God will never forget us. He'll never forget us. Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 16 says, But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. Zion apparently had the same problem David did at this point. And my Lord has forgotten me. But God responds and says, can a woman forget her nursing child? and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And then he says, surely they may forget. In other words, it's possible that a woman would forget her nursing child. He says, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Now, I think that's really cool. Uh, I have a friend who when he really wants to make sure that he doesn't forget something, he writes a note on his hand. You know, he could just as easily use a piece of paper. It's not like the paper isn't there. One time I was working with him and and we took some measurements. He was helping me do some stuff in the garage. And and we took some measurements and uh, I told him what they were and he got his pen out and he started writing them on his hand. And I said, here, this, you know, I got a piece of paper. You can write it. No, he says... This is what I need. I need it on my hand here. And the reason that he does that on his hand is because he can never forget his hand. (laughs) He might forget the piece of paper. He might lose the piece of paper. But he's not going to lose his hand. And that's his, 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 his thinking in that. And so metaphorically speaking, God has written us on his hand. And so he'll never forget us. He'll never forget us. 
So then David prays. Verse 3. He says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So he cries out to God in prayer here. He asks God to rescue him from this desperate situation so that his enemy won't be able to kill him and boast about it. He asks God to enlighten his eyes. You know, I think this is a prayer for divine wisdom. Enlighten my eyes, Lord. For divine wisdom and understanding. So that he could see things from God's perspective. You know, if we could just see things from God's perspective, it would all make sense. Because it all makes sense to him. So if we could see from his perspective, that would make all the difference in the world. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, But I have trusted in your mercy. This is David's declaration of trust now. I've trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So in verse 5 he says he's going to rely on and rejoice in God. And in verse 6 he says that he's going to worship God. But really what has changed as far as God is concerned? What has changed as far as God is concerned? Nothing. Nothing at all. God is still silent. So what does David do? He falls back on what he knows of God. How God has answered his prayers in the past and how God has delivered him in the past from his enemies. And David is using that to to give him strength and encouragement in the present. We too have to have the proper perspective as we go through these silent times because we will and we do. We have to focus back on Him and His faithfulness and His mercy in our lives in the past. It will take us from sinking to swimming. So again, when we're going through those difficult times that don't seem like they'll ever come to an end, what should we do? Simple. We have to come to God in humble prayer and trust. Yes. Don't internalize the struggle. Which is what I so often do. You know, I'm going through it and man, I just, I lay down on my bed and my mind is just, you know, racing and trying to figure it out and trying to understand why and what am I going to do, you know, and this isn't right and, you know, and I'm internalizing the struggle rather than taking it to the Lord in prayer, in trusting prayer. So don't internalize the struggle. That only makes you feel worse and more in despair. Call out to God. Only He can deliver us. Let God be the first recourse, not the second or the third or the last. Then after calling out to Him, wait patiently for God to act. His timing is always perfect. Never too late. Never too early. True faith gives the Lord time to do His work in His time. Because the Lord's time is what? The perfect time. Right? Psalm 14. 
to the chief musician of Psalm of David. Now, the main idea in this psalm is that the entire human race is in moral rebellion against God. But at the same time, those who do turn to Him in repentance long for the final establishment of uh, His righteous kingdom on the earth. And as we read through this, you're going to see that this is not a pretty psalm. In fact, it's kind of a downer. Yet, being written to the chief musician, it was meant to be sung in public, a song for the congregation, which tells me that sometimes, you know, the songs that, that God wants us to sing are not always joyful, happy, you know, uh, stir our hearts to worship kind of songs. Sometimes they're downers. And uh, this is one of those. Uh, life isn't pretty, but we shouldn't be afraid uh, to talk about difficult things at church or even sing about them. So, first of all, we, we see David's assessment of humankind. He says in verse 1, and this is a famous verse, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now, when D.L. Moody was conducting evangelistic meetings, he frequently had um, hecklers who were in the crowd who were in violent disagreement with him. In the final service of, of one campaign, an usher handed uh, D.L. Moody a note as he entered the auditorium. And it was actually from an atheist who had been giving Dr. Moody a, a great deal of trouble during this campaign. Well, D.L. Moody thought that it was an announcement. And so he quieted the, the crowd and he prepared to read the announcement. He opened it up, the folded piece of paper. And when he did, he found scrawled in large print only one word. Fool. That's what it said. Fool with an exclamation point afterwards. Well, he, D.L. Moody was kind of a witty guy, so he was uh, equal to the occasion. He spoke up and he said, I have just been handed a memo which contains the single word fool. This is most unusual, he said. I have often heard of those who have written letters and forgotten to sign their names, but this is the first time I've ever heard of anybody who signed his name and then forgot to write the letter. <laughs> and taking advantage of this unique situation, he promptly changed his sermon text to this one. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The man who is an atheist is a fool, according to David. The man who says there is no God is a fool. Can you guess what the Hebrew word for fool is? Hmm? No, I mean the Hebrew word. <laughs> <laughs> you probably don't remember this, but we did cover it in a previous study. It's the word Nabal. Nabal. You remember that fellow Nabal who refused to help David and his men when they were fleeing from Saul, even though David and his 600 guys saw to it that Nabal's shepherds and livestock were safe as they grazed in the fields. David was, and his men were essentially Nabal's security force. When David asked for a little help for his men and their families, Nabal just insulted David 
and told David to get lost. But remember, Nabal's wife, Abigail, realizing what her husband had done, sent a significant amount of supplies unknown to her husband to David and his men to appease him because David and his men were on their way to kill Nabal and his family. Uh, and so she you know, preempted that by getting together this large supply of stuff and sending it to David and going herself and bowing down before him. And in the process, she acknowledged that her husband's actions and attitudes displayed well the meaning of his name. She said, for his name means fool and he is a fool. So when Abel found out what his wife had done, he got so angry that he had a heart attack and died. Now the fool, David says, the Nabal has said in his heart there is no God. Now if you take in your mind the position there is no God, it has certain inevitable consequences in your life. If there is no God, then there is no real standard for good and for evil. Everything becomes relative. You can really do what you want to do. Because if there is no God, there's no one to say what is right and what is wrong. There's no absolute standard. Now, society may create a standard, but it has no basis other than what the society agrees. And so it's really just a relative standard. There's no absolute standard. You can determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong if you don't believe in God. And usually the person takes uh, uh, the, the position there is no God because he wants to determine for himself what is right and what is wrong. He doesn't want to submit to the law. He doesn't want to submit to the authority of God. And so the fool is a person who is morally perverse, not mentally deficient. He is morally perverse. He's not really an intellectual atheist, denying the existence of God, but he's a practical atheist, living as though there were no God. It's not that there aren't any you know, good, strong, satisfying reasons to believe in God. There is plenty of evidence to support the existence of God. The problem is not an intellectual one. It's a moral one. They don't want to believe in God because of the moral implications for their lives. And so as a result, when a person takes this view as an atheist, they become corrupt. That's what David says. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. And, and this is surely true. Show me one hospital that has been built by the atheist society. None. None who does good. They spend their money to tear down instead. They spend their money to support the causes that will destroy. They don't use their money for good, uplifting causes, for things uh, within society, but they spend their money really to tear down the foundations, to, to destroy the society. They're corrupt. They do abominable works. There is none who does good. That's what David says here. He goes on in verse 2. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand 
who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. David says there is no one who does good. The entire world is under sin, which leaves people incapable and unwilling to do good on their own. Notice the all-inclusive words there, verse 2. Um, I'm sorry, verse 1. None. None who does good. Verse 2. To see if there are any who understand. Verse 3. All have turned aside. Together they become corrupt. None who does good. Not one. Those are all inclusive. You know, he's not saying, well, you know, there are, there are some good people, but most people are bad. He's not saying that. He wouldn't have said six different times in an all-inclusive fashion that none do good. This conveys, I believe, the sad universal reality of depravity. Paul picks up on this in Romans 3 as he quotes these verses. And then in Romans 3.23 he declares, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is really very blunt. But as God looks down upon man, apart from Christ being in their lives, they are no good. And it doesn't matter how good we think we are, apart from Christ, it's counted as nothing. He goes on in verse 4, he says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. As much as the wicked come against God's people, they won't win. God is with the generation of the righteous and the Lord will be the refuge of the poor. And then in verse 7, God appeal, or David appeals to heaven. He says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And this looks forward really to the time of the tribulation period as God protects His people, the Jews, for three and a half years, probably in what we call today the rock city of Petra from the Antichrist and his army. And truly, salvation will come out of Zion as God brings back his people from captivity and he sets up his kingdom here on the earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgment. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said of Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion, but not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. When is that going to happen? When Jesus comes back, sets up His kingdom on the earth. Then the Lord your God will be in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. There's no doubt about it. God will prevail over all who say there is no God. Hopefully, these fools will come to their senses before it's too late. I'm sure glad I did. I was one of those guys when I was a little bit younger. 
His mercy is available to all who will call upon Him him in humility and, and in repentance. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. This psalm talks about those who are going to enter into the kingdom. And many take this to mean the millennial kingdom in the last days. David asks the Lord a question. Verse 1, he says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? The idea of abiding and dwelling is, is not talking about a temporary thing. It's talking about a permanent thing. We're not just talking about visiting God. We're talking about staying with Him forever in His kingdom. Who's going to do that? That's really an important question, wouldn't you say? Who gets to be with the Lord forever? That's what David... Yes, you too, Kelly. That's what David talks about next. Verse 2. He says, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out Uh, his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So this is a pretty incredible list here, isn't it? These are the ones that are going to be able to uh, be with the Lord forever. Now, some people read this wrongly and they try to make a works theology out of it. To come before God, you have to do certain works. Wrong. It's not how can I come before God. But who can come before God? You see, these are the characteristics or the fruit that is born out of a person who is in Christ. It's not saying that this person always does all of these things flawlessly. It's saying essentially, as, as you know, any list of stuff like this would be saying, this is the way the person lives his life. This is... What is important to this person? And these are things that are not important as well. This is, this is generally the way this person lives out his life. The characteristics or the fruit uh, of the person that's uh, in Christ. And David must be really talking about a regenerated person here. One who has invited God to be his Lord and Savior. You know, in order for Jesus to be your Savior, you must also submit to Him as your Lord. I, I, I don't really think the Bible knows anything of a Lordless Savior. I don't believe that you can have Jesus as the Savior of your life if you've never submitted to Him as the Lord of your life. James put it this way in, in James two seventeen to 18 Thus, also, faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And, and James responds, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. John Calvin put it this way, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. It's accompanied by works. 
the ones who are going to stand before God are not those who have just glibly said that they believe and they have faith. The ones who will dwell in God's sanctuary as demonstrated by this psalm here are those who have had uh, a faith in God that has produced a changed life. And so he talks about walking uprightly and working righteousness and speaking the truth in verse 2. And the one who refuses to backbite or to do evil to his neighbor or to discredit his friend in the eyes of others. Verse 3. The truly regenerated person will reject the vile person and honors others who fear the Lord. And, and he is one who keeps his oath. His word is his bond. Even if keeping his word brings hurt to him that he didn't anticipate when he gave it, he still is intent on keeping his word. Verse 4. This person is one who doesn't take advantage of one who is hurting so much that, that he has to borrow to survive. He doesn't charge interest. That's what usury is. Interest. He doesn't charge interest to those in need. But instead, he uses what he has to help others. And then, um, he won't take a bribe against the innocent. You can't buy this person off. You can't bribe him. Verse 5. These are just a few examples of what a truly regenerated person looks like and one who will abide and dwell in the presence of the Lord. And if you don't see these traits as, as a general rule of thumb in a, in a person's life, um, chances are they may not be saved. They may not be regenerated. He goes on in verse 5, the last half of verse 5, he says, He who does these things shall never be moved. That's pretty incredible, huh? So the promise of stability and security is given to those who abide in faith, with their faith being evident through a life lived in general obedience. The idea behind shall never be moved is that this righteous one will be a guest in the tent of God forever. As in Psalm 61 verse 4. In New Testament words, we could express it like this. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. First John 2.17 Isn't that saying essentially just exactly what David is saying here in this psalm? He who, uh, who does the will of God abides forever. So, many have been shaken though. They've been shaken till the walls have collapsed and the foundation has crumbled. Their lives are in a shambles. But it doesn't have to stay that way. When Jesus becomes Lord and Savior, then any life can be put back together again. Amen? He who does these things shall never be moved. So Psalm 16, a miktam of David. We don't really know what that means, miktam. Uh, but it means something. But we don't know what it means. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> It's been said that no one is really ready to live until he is first ready to die. Only in facing the reality of death with a living God, a living faith in God, is a person really prepared to live boldly and courageously for the Lord, even in the face of really difficult times. Even though David seems to be facing mounting adversity, he can rejoice in the Lord 
knowing that God is helping him and he has an eternity of blessing to look forward to after he dies. David speaks of the joy found in trusting the Lord. So that's what this psalm is about. So uh, verses 1 to 6 speak about David's confidence in God. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. So once again, David is expressing his trust in the Lord. He asks God to preserve him because David is trusting God. He knew that only God could give him the security he needed. In many of the Psalms, David talks to himself. And in verse 2, he seems to be doing the same thing. O my soul, he says, you have said to the Lord. Um, And that may seem a little strange to us. But then again, maybe not. <laughs> maybe we all talk uh, to ourselves, encourage, trying to encourage ourselves like David is doing here. But in doing this, David is really encouraging himself as he focuses on the Lord. Sometimes just hearing these words helps, gives you, helps to give you a different perspective on the situation. And here he says that God is truly his Lord, expressing total reliance in him. Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And and so he's saying, I'm really trusting in the Lord. I'm really focusing on Him. You know, and for those who think that, you know, you have a little good in you, (laughs) I have some bad news for you. (laughs) There's no good in you or any of us. I refer you back to Psalm 14. The only good we have comes from the Lord. David says, My goodness is nothing apart from you. Verse 3, he says, As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Here we see two contrasting people here. Those that trust put their trust in the Lord and those who put their trust in other gods. Now, David lived in a society that was polytheistic, a society that served many gods. Some even drank the blood of animals in the worship of their gods. And God is forbidding that kind of activity for His people. They were to be separate. That's what he's getting at there in verse 4. David is saying that those who serve other gods are eventually going to have their sorrows multiplied. On the other hand, David rejoiced in the believers in the land. He called them the excellent ones. I like that. Choice in the sight of God. David expressed his love for them by saying that in them was all his delight. But concerning the idolaters, David didn't even want to have anything to do with them. He didn't even want to speak their names. But he delighted in God's people and so should we. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. So David was blessed with his life apparently and, and what the Lord had given him. Now, we don't really know at what point in David's life that he's writing this song. It may be during his reign as king, 
and, and maybe things were going well enough for him to appreciate the material blessings uh, in his life. But let's not forget that it wasn't always that way. David didn't um, always have it cozy and comfortable. He had it rough and hard quite often in his earlier years. It, it, it was something like eight years that he ran from Saul. And, uh, and so he was basically running for his life. And though he knew firsthand what it was to have a hard life, he could say this and, and really mean it, I, I believe. Um, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a, a good inheritance. And he also may be talking about his future as well. He may be anticipating uh, his future because, you know, even, even when he was king, he went through some horrendous times. You know, uh, we could go down the list, but we don't have time for it. Suffice it to say, um, it, it wasn't always rosy and, and wonderful. Um, he fled for his life, even, uh, you know, as his own son was trying to usurp the throne from him. So it was not always a, an easy go. And even in his latter years, he took the census. And, you know, 70,000 people were killed as a result of the decision that he made. That had to have had a very, um, you know, difficult uh, impact on him. And yet, um, he says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. He, he could very well have been talking about uh, in the afterlife. So he says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. David praised the Lord because he knew God was giving him counsel. God was speaking to David. When he would go to bed at night, he would consider the ways God was leading him and, and allow those things to become part of him. In essence, he's saying that he would eat, drink, and sleep with the counsels of the Lord. And then he says that he has put the Lord in front of him and at his right hand. This was the place of undivided focus and exclusive preeminence. The right hand was the place of highest exaltation as his um, all-sufficient sustainer. And God was front and center with him as well. Nothing came even close to the importance of God in David's life. Which is why he said that he would never be moved. Because God is immovable. So was David. And of course, this should really speak to us. Where must God be in our life? Leading the way. He must be the priority in our life. If He is, all the rest will fall into place. He goes on in verse 9. He says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, in a limited sense, what David is saying here is true of himself. But then... All of a sudden, David is speaking prophetically of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The reason I say this is simple. David's body did see corruption. You can go to Israel today and see a place that some say is the tomb of David, where his bones um, still remain. Whether or not it is, is questionable, as so, so many of the sites there are. You know, because it's not located in the city of David, where the Bible says that he was buried. But regardless... <laughs> He was buried somewhere and his body became corrupt, right? Just like ours will be. 
But Jesus, on the other hand, rose on the third day before His body saw corruption. Also, Peter on the day of Pentecost quoted these verses and said that David was not speaking of himself, but of Christ. And Paul in Acts chapter 13 said to the people of Antioch, he said, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He's talking about this passage, right? For David, after... This is Paul's commentary now on this. For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Christ. So David is speaking, or was speaking prophetically, of the resurrection of Christ, who, as we know, was a descendant of David. Now, as Christians, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. So even as these bodies go back to the dust of the earth, we will be present with the Lord. And then later on, at the rapture, God is going to resurrect our bodies and take the corruption that they've become and make them incorruptible and reunite us with them. Verse 11, um, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our fullness of joy is found in the Lord. Now let me ask you, what is the path of life? It's not works that we walk in, but it's a person that we trust in. Jesus is the path to eternal life where true joy is found. So spend time in His presence and you will be full of joy in your heart that will overflow in your life. And then the things that David talks about in Psalm 15 will be things that flow naturally from you. There'll be evidence of your faith. Finally, Psalm 17. David recognized that it was difficult at times to walk on this path of life that he refers to in Psalm 16. Especially when your enemies are crowding you on all sides. That's apparently the situation that he was in here. So he seeks God for his help and his strength. And in the process, he asks God to reveal any personal sin and supply perfect protection. So, first of all, David pleads to God in crisis. Verse 1, prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Notice he talks about his heart in verse 3. His mouth also in verse 3. And his works or his deeds, verse 4. All these, David says, were in line with the Lord. And, And so that should be a goal that we work towards as well. So often the mouth might be fine, or the deeds, or even both. But 
The problem is in the heart. The heart is far from the goal. Outwardly we look wonderful, but inwardly we're corrupt. But God had tested David's heart and found nothing wrong. That should be our goal. But I have to tell you, it will be a lifelong struggle. (laughs) Uh, Because as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God can know it. But I believe that as we submit to Him, He will help us each day to cleanse our hearts. And sometimes the Lord uses pain and suffering in our lives to bring us to this point. came across an interesting proverb. Proverbs 20.30 says, Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. That's pretty heavy, huh? God sometimes will allow these difficult things to come into our lives to cleanse us from evil, to, to cleanse the inner depths of our heart. He goes on uh, to, to plead uh, to God for protection in verses 5 to 15. He says, Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you for... You will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you uh, who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. So God will hear us when we call upon Him. Verse 6. God will show His loving kindness and save those who trust Him. Verse 7. God is our Protector, and David uses two illustrations to make this point in verse 8. First, he wants God to keep him as the apple of his eye or the pupil of his eye. He wants God to keep him as his focus. In other words, Lord, don't take your eyes off me. You know, uh, don't take your eyes off me, Lord. And secondly, that we're protected under his wings, just as a bird protects her young under her wings. As God does this for us, we have the protection that we need and we don't need anything else. It goes on in verse 9. He says, From the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. This is who David wanted protection from. Verse 10, They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. As people gorge themselves on the things of this world, they become self-sufficient and proud. There is no room for God in their lives. That's what David is saying here. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Notice the picture that David is painting here. His enemies are ready to pounce upon him just like a lion who is ready to tear into his prey. That's why he's crying out to God for help. That God would keep his eyes on David and protect him from this attack. He says, Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand from men, O Lord. From men of the world who have their portion in this life. Many eat, drink, and are merry. Trying to gain all they can from this life. Because this is their portion. This is it. And people who are not focused on the Lord are consumed with this life, trying to get all they can 
from it. But in the end, they will find out that they sold their soul for nothing. It's as Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, He said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He says, Who, And whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, this last part of verse 4 that we just read um, is, is a difficult, it's a little hard to translate. It could be as it is here, uh, in which case it would continue the thought of the first part of the verse. Uh, but then it, it really doesn't make any sense to me because it says that God fills the belly of the wicked with hidden treasure. And I guess I don't really understand that, to be honest with you. Uh, but other translations render it something like, as for your treasured ones, you fill their womb. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. So it, it essentially turns around that first part of it uh, and, and talks about the hidden treasure as being God's people. As for your hidden treasure, um, you fill their bellies or, or you fill their wombs if you will, uh, with children. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their infants. This then would be a promise to the faithful ones that they would have large families uh, and that they would be able to leave them a large inheritance, which is something that was very important back in those days. Large families, especially lots of sons. And then in verse 15, David is contrasting himself with the wicked who sought after material possessions and David sought the Lord. He was looking forward to the day when he would awake in God's likeness. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Kind of like what John said in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2-3. to 3. Uh, We read there, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. So, what should we do when we're attacked by the world? We need to call upon God and ask for His help. Persecution should drive us closer to the Lord, not closer to our flesh. It should provoke to godliness, not worldliness. Someone once said, that the outlook is often bleak, but the uplook is always bright. Let's keep looking up when things are looking down. That way, we'll keep the right perspective. Let's pray, okay? Father, we thank you for this word that we received tonight, and certainly we covered a lot of information here and uh, some really rich stuff for our hearts. I pray that you'll help us now to to sort of chew on it and meditate on it and, and be comforted by it this evening. Thank you for uh, your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you never leave us or forsake us and that you're always available to us. Help us, Lord, to be seeking constantly after you, looking to you constantly as our source of strength 
and comfort and as our fortress, our place of refuge. And when we're feeling down and when we're feeling weak, help us to turn to you. And we thank you for it, Lord. We also pray for Greg and Beverly um, as they uh, spend time with their family. We pray that you'll bless them and help them to be an encouragement to them. We pray for um, Jason and Jennifer. We pray that uh, you'll just be their peace tonight and their comfort. And I pray, Lord, that you'll just work out all the details with the insurance. And, and, I, and I also pray, Lord, that you'll help the authorities to find the people that have done this and uh, bring them to justice. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.